I wouldn't like in our terrorism to be carried on inside independent countries, you know, like Europe, Africa, that type of thing. But uh, to help and liberation movements throughout the world, that is something which I regard as positively good. For Mandela, nonviolence was a tactic. He attached no particular moral value to it. And for him, if a tactic wasn't working, it should be abandoned. Here Mandela describes a trip he took to Durban in 1961 to try to persuade the then head of the ANC, Chief Latuli, that they needed to take up arms. So we knew, of course, that we were going to get opposition from the chief because he believed in nonviolence as a principle, mm-hmm. whereas we believed in it as a tactic. Although we couldn't say so to court, to the court, we have always believed in, non-vi- in nonviolence as a tactic. Where the conditions demanded that we should use nonviolence, we would do so. Where the conditions demanded that we should depart from nonviolence, we would do so. This is who he was. Mandela was a stone-cold pragmatist with one undeviating principle, freedom for his people. It is you who determines the method of political action that we should use. If you use violence, we will use violence. If you decide to use peaceful methods of resolving problems, we will use peaceful methods of resolving problems. So you have decided what method we should use. Passive resistance wasn't in Mandela's nature. He wasn't passive about anything. In the last episode, we saw Mandela captured after his trip to Africa and then tried and convicted to five years' imprisonment in 1962 for illegally leaving the country and leading protests. It appeared that the state didn't know of Mandela's role in the ANC's turn toward armed struggle, or his charge would have been far more severe, his sentence harsher. But within a year, Mandela was on trial again, this time in the most famous and consequential political trial in South African history, the Ravonia trial. Mandela and his colleagues were charged with committing treason and trying to violently overthrow the government. The ultimate penalty was death by hanging. But first, I want you to understand Mandela's reluctant embrace of violence. It is a key to understanding who he was and the time that he lived in. Yes, that image of him as a smiling, gentle grandfather who loved holding babies is certainly true. But he was also a violent revolutionary. When the only way you're off making a forward movement or solving problems is the use of force. When peaceful methods become inadequate, That is a lesson of history. That is Mandela explaining to me how necessary it was that he had to turn toward violence. It's a lesson he learned the hard way. The second half of 1960, you and some colleagues came to the conclusion that violence was going to be inevitable. Was there a build-up to the decision? No, what actually happened was I discussed the matter with Comrade Walter in 1952. I then said to him, hey, we went uh, to start an arms struggle and get arms. But I remain convinced that uh, this was the correct strategy for us. 
After the Sharpeville massacre, in which 69 protesters had been slaughtered by police, Mandela saw no alternative to fighting fire with fire. That decision changed the trajectory of his life, the ANC, and the future of South Africa. From its founding in 1912, the ANC had been an organization that was dedicated to nonviolence. They followed the tradition of Gandhi, who had spent two decades in South Africa protesting discrimination against Indians. Gandhi's nonviolent philosophy and methods were less successful in South Africa than when he took them back to India. Mandela's role models weren't pacifists like Gandhi. He studied the successful revolutionaries of the post-World War II era, Mao in China, Castro in Cuba, Ben Bella in Algeria. All had led violent revolutionary movements that defeated repressive regimes. That was his model. What I wouldn't accept is that uh, violence should be used to topple established regimes, you know, uh, in various countries. But to help liberation movements, I fully support. For him, nonviolence was just another element in an overall strategy, not an inherent principle of the ANC or the freedom struggle. Our approach was to empower the organizations to be effective in its leadership. And if uh, the adoption of nonviolence gave it that effectiveness, we would pursue nonviolence. But uh, if the condition shows that nonviolence was not effective, we would use other means. So it's the, that same distinction you've made before. Nonviolence was a strategy, not a principle. Yes. Mandela was a stubborn man. But I remember him once saying, when the conditions change, I change my mind. Well, in the early 1960s, the conditions had changed. The South African government was applying military force to the nonviolent struggle. Life in South Africa was becoming more violent. Just as in those early years, he had changed his mind about Indians and communists being in the ANC, he changed his mind about nonviolence. But we were dealing with a very brutal government, which did not uh, hesitate to use bullets, live bullets, against the ordinary civilians, unarmed and defenseless. From Mandela's point of view, violence was now necessary in response. And many South Africans had already come to that same conclusion. He thought the ANC should get out ahead of it. Look, this thing has already started in our country. Let us take the same decision and lead. Because otherwise, it will just deteriorate into a terrorist movement. We want a dignified guerrilla warfare, Armstrong, where we're guided by principles, where we save life, where we heal to the, heal to the symbols of oppression. Let us end our lead. Dignified guerrilla warfare. What a prototypical Mandela phrase. He didn't want the violence to be, well, violent or messy. He did not embrace violence because it was in his nature, but because it was in his interest. He wanted it to be dignified. However, it wasn't so easy to convince the rest of the ANC leadership to move towards armed struggle, even a dignified one. In 1961, Mandela drove down to Natal, 
where the ANC leadership debated the idea. We took the whole night. We never slept that night. But we persuaded them that there is no other way the ANC can remain on top unless it takes a lead on the question of arms struggle. Some people in that meeting argued strongly against moving to violence. One of them was Jayan Singh, a friend of Mandela's who was a leader of the Natal Indian Congress. The chap like Jayan kept on with saying with great eloquence, no, nonviolence has not failed us. We have failed nonviolence. And these uh, slogans, you know, can be very powerful. But slogans can't overwhelm reality. So at this meeting of the ANC, overwhelming majority was in favor of starting MK. MK, Umkanto Wisizwe, the spear of the nation, the military wing of the ANC. How was the name decided, Umkanto Wisizwe? Umkanto was um, a powerful weapon amongst the, the Africans. And uh, they fought their wars with uh, the Osagai. And they resisted the white supremacy for centuries with the spear. Therefore, it is something that is very symbolic, very emotional. Mm-hmm. And we use that. Mm-hmm. Mandela always understood the power of symbolism and emotion. The ANC put him in charge. Mandela founded and led MK. He was 43 years old. Then when we had to resort to armed struggle, to violence, I was made the commander of Umkonto Wasizwe. This may sound funny, but while Mandela had initiated the turn toward violence, that didn't mean he actually wanted to hurt anyone. He didn't. He felt the state had left him no choice. The early efforts of MK targeted buildings or police stations or power centers used by the apartheid government. The bombings were meant to cripple the facilities arrayed against them and also to terrorize the opposition. But their goal was not to harm any actual human beings. There were bombings in Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth and Durban, but they were all coordinated. I don't know, I mean, the actual explosion may have been a few minutes before the actual announcement. I don't know, but they were all the result of an instruction. The night before the first wave of ANC bombings in 1961, ANC volunteers had put up posters saying, submit or fight. The timing of the bombings was December 16th, what was known in South Africa as the Day of the Covenant. It was a holiday commemorating the Afrikaners' massacre of thousands of Zulus in 1838. The day was a celebration of white nationalism and a defeat of the Swart Gafar, the Black Threat. It also became a day in the calendar that the ANC circled in red. Bombs exploded in Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth, and Durban. Did you think that the first, that the December 16th bombings went well according to plan? Oh, yes, oh, yes. Because the, the Durban bomb didn't go off very well. Johannesburg and uh, Port Elizabeth are good. Mm-hmm. Durban bomb didn't go out well. Mm-hmm. 
The timing of this first wave of bombings was awkward politically. Six days before, on the 10th of December 1961, Chief Latuli, the head of the ANC, received the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, the first time an African had ever won it. Mandela always insisted that the goal of MK was not to start a civil war. The violence was meant to trigger negotiations. But it didn't, at least not at first. In fact, it made the state more ruthless. I always found it a little odd that Mandela created the violent wing of the ANC. Up close, his whole manner was immensely gentle. In his prison memoir, Mandela writes about how one day at Lily's Leaf Farm, when he was living under the alias of David Matsumai, he was practicing with his air rifle and shot a sparrow. He said Arthur Goldreich's five-year-old son came to him and said, David, why did you kill that bird? Its mother will miss it. He wrote that that boy had more humanity than he had. In prison, he used to carry crickets outside rather than step on them. In a curious way, nonviolence for him was a personal principle, but not a political one. When he was underground and starting MK, the white South African newspapers dubbed Mandela the Black Pimpernel. It was a reference to the hero of the Scarlet Pimpernel, a wildly popular 1903 British play in which a foppish Englishman has a secret identity as a daring swordsman. But in South Africa in 1962, the reference pointed to Mandela's double identity, a dashing bearded figure in fatigues who was trying to violently overthrow the government and a successful lawyer in a double-breasted suit. But Mandela wasn't a fictional hero. He was considered a dangerous terrorist not only by the South African government, but the entire West. Mandela was on the FBI's most wanted list in the 1950s, and he remained on the United States terrorist watch list until 2008. 2008? That's six years after President George W. Bush awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So when he was finally caught in 1962... It was front-page headlines across South Africa. We ended the last episode with his conviction in the 1962 trial for illegally leaving the country and leading a strike. He was sentenced to five years in jail. On July 11th, the police raided the farm and not only arrested the senior leadership of the ANC and MK, they had found his secret papers detailing his study of guerrilla warfare and the start of MK. Sasulu, Mandela and eight of their colleagues were indicted for two counts of sabotage. Eleven months later, in October 1963, at the Palace of Justice in Pretoria, the Ravonia trial began with ten defendants. Mandela was accused number one. This time the state was prepared. The defendants were charged with, among other things, conducting guerrilla warfare for the purpose of violent revolution soliciting and receiving money for that purpose, training people in the use of explosives and sabotage to conduct this revolution. Pretty much the whole thing. All 10 pleaded not guilty. If convicted, the ultimate penalty was death by hanging. That's what the state was calling for. 
The Rabonia trial was one of the most important cases in the history of Africa, and indeed the world. It changed the course of South African history and, of course, Nelson Mandela's own life. For the government, they believed they had the ANC on the ropes. This was their chance to end the liberation struggle. For supporters of the ANC, it was an existential crisis. There were large crowds of ANC supporters outside the courthouse every day. Because I came from Johannesburg, Johannesburg was more active, more aggressive, and they feared the size of the crowds that would attend court. And they have always tried, you know, to reduce our influence and standing, to say we have no following. And of course, uh, turning up in large numbers contradicted that. The Ravonia trial was depicted in the media as a great struggle between the white apartheid government and the black ANC terrorists who sought to overthrow them. By taking the entire leadership of the ANC to trial, the government was aiming to remove the threat of the ANC forever. Mandela was the face of the trial. We plead not guilty. But Mandela wasn't trying to evade conviction. He was determined to use the trial as a platform for his political philosophy and that of the ANC. For Mandela, it was apartheid that was on trial. Oh, we won a trial. It aroused emotions tremendously. Mm-hmm. We made it clear that uh, this was uh, a unique trial. And we said, it is the government that should be in the dock, not us. Mandela used the spotlight on him to make a case that the government's actions were immoral and a violation of universal human rights. Your idea in the trial was not to have a trial by law so much as to have a political morality play. Is that right? No, it was a political defense. Mandela would argue that the ANC's actions were justified by moral fairness and universal notions of justice. Their defense strategy was not to contest the charges, but to assert that the law itself was unjust. We used the court to attack the whole system of apartheid and of racial oppression. That was our strategy. But the state's case was a very specific one. Mandela was plotting a violent overthrow of the South African government. Full stop. Treason. Prosecutors believed that they had evidence that could sway the court. They did. And Mandela knew it. Perhaps that's why his colleagues on the outside were plotting a dramatic escape plan. Mandela was kept under a watchful eye. The guard feared that the ANC would try to kidnap Mandela and take him to safety. In fact, they were right. A number of Mandela's colleagues on the outside led by Joe Slovo, were hatching plots. I interviewed Joe Slovo, who would eventually succeed Mandela as head of Umkonto Wisizwe. We then decided that we would try to spring him. I asked Joe about this. At the time, Joe had just retired as head of the South African Communist Party. He was one of the giants in the history of the ANC the fiery, red-haired former leader of MK. He and Mandela had first met at university in Johannesburg in the 1940s, and Mandela loved him. When I went to the fort to visit uh, Mandela, 
I got a message from Dinath that the colonel in charge of the fort wanted to see me. I, I, I then arranged to see him in a hotel somewhere in town. He then sort of boldly put to me a proposition that if we were able to fix a proper sum, he would collaborate with uh, the escape of Mandela and was prepared to put Mandela in the boot of his car you know, and uh, get him out. The amount fixed was 7,000 pounds. Prison officials were a pretty corrupt lot, and the ANC knew this and tried to exploit it. But the scheme didn't pan out. Slovo then considered trying to sneak him out of custody in a disguise. We want to transform into an Indian. Yes, there was a wig involved. In the end, Mandela sent word that the escape plans were just too risky. The guards were monitoring him all the time. And a bungled escape plan would be a PR disaster. The way they um, looked after me when I was appearing in court suggested that uh, they were either aware of the plan or felt that uh, they should take precautions. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when you go to court, you are kept in a particular cell underneath the courts. They kept me in an office. But uh, every minute, a senior and official would open the door and look, and then close. Go away, another uh, minute, open the door and look. The way he did it suggested that uh, he was afraid, he said, that uh, he might find me scaling a window or something like that. Mandela was always about facing challenges, however grim not escaping them. When the police raided Lily's Leaf Farm the year before, not only did they find the leaders of the ANC, they also found troves of documents. Mandela had been right all along. They had been far too lax about security at the farm. The police were very efficient in investigating. What we had done, there was a place where they kept coal, built uh, with bricks, and uh, almost like a little house. And uh, they poured the coal on top and filled it. What we did was to put these books in an empty. When it was empty, put it down there and then put the coal on and filled it. Mm -hmm. Mandela hid his notes at the bottom of a coal chute at the farm, but the police found them. The documents were incriminating. They outlined plans and operations for MK. There was nothing more dangerous. I was just uh, making notes on guerrilla warfare. And there was the other document, how to be a good communist. Right. So this document after document that they kept producing, it was, it was uh, very damning. I think at the time, he was annoyed that the ANC seemed amateurish, that they weren't a real armed force. And he was probably right about that. So what about that document, How to Be a Good Communist? Well, he always said it was just a summary of a famous Chinese essay with that same title. Even after all these years, the Rabonia trial had been 30 years before, Mandela still suggested that he had no real affiliation with the Communist Party. 
that he was a kind of student of Marxism-Leninism, not a believer, much less a senior member of the party. Remember, foremost at the time we were talking, is that he would be running for president of South Africa within the next year. He never really came clean on whether or not he had been a member of the Communist Party. He always denied it. I think he had been a member. But as always, Mandela was a supreme pragmatist. If it helped him to get to his goal of freedom for his people, he would be a communist. When it did not, he would not be. It's that simple. The documents made it clear that Mandela and his colleagues were seeking to topple the state and produce national unrest. In the end, he would testify to that himself. The farm didn't just produce documents, it produced witnesses. The state put the people who Mandela had served and cooked for on the stand. The first was an older black foreman named Jellyman. But Jellyman didn't actually end up being a cooperating witness for the prosecution. No, you just look. It was a very blank look, he said, he looked beyond me. And he said, I, I don't see him here. So he said, just look again, just start from the beginning. Look at the people in their faces. And he came and looked just beyond me again. And he says, I can't see him, I don't think he's here. They were frustrated. Uh, the prosecutor and the police, they were, they were nervous, you know. Once this chap said uh, he didn't see me, they were very nervous. But uh, there were many witnesses who identified me. The farm housekeeper was one of those witnesses. She was terrified. Now, when she came uh, to the box, she was asked who else stayed in the rooms at the back and in the house. And he says, no, it was... Uh, David. David who? He says, I don't know, but it was David. And he says, is he here? He says, yes, there he is. <laughs> Number one. And then uh, when uh, they cross-examine her, she says, oh no, I broke down because uh, I was thinking of my child. That boy of about seven. I was thinking of my child. When he recounted this story to me 30 years later, you could see her story still moved him. And, uh, you know, I sympathize with her. Yeah. I really sympathize with her. In all the time I ever spent with him, he would always praise people for their courage, never criticize them for their weakness. He understood and sympathized with human frailty. I think he empathized with the weak more than he identified with the strong. The only difference, he would say, is that the brave put up a front. The Ravonia trial lasted eight months. Day by day, the state meticulously presented its evidence. In fact, there was a mountain of evidence against Mandela and his colleagues. They did not deny they were planning and had launched an armed struggle. There wasn't much drama until the end. They felt that uh, I was very implicated by the literature which was in my handwriting that uh, my guilt was quite clear and that uh, it would not uh, be politically correct for me to deny some of the allegations. To deny those allegations would be to deny his political philosophy, to deny everything he had fought for. 
Mandela and his lawyers decided he should do something different. He leaned into the charges. He didn't contest them. If he was going to be sentenced to death, a possibility that never left his mind, he did not want to look like he was trying to save his own neck. If he was to die, he would die for his principles. He would not appear as a witness where he could be cross-examined. Instead of testifying, Mandela would make a speech from the dock. This is an actual archival recording made on a dictaphone of Mandela giving his speech from the dock in 1964. A speech about his life and his political philosophy and why he believed he had no choice but to defy unjust laws to bring freedom to his people. Our fight is against fear and not imaginary hardships or to use the language of the state prosecutor, so-called hardships. For four long hours, Mandela laid out his own indictment of apartheid and the history of his own political awakening. The whites enjoy what may well be the highest standard of living in the world, whilst Africans live in poverty and misery. Poverty goes hand in hand with malnutrition and disease. It was detailed and meticulous and painstakingly argued. He spoke slowly and clearly. The lack of human dignity experienced by Africans is the direct result of the policy of white supremacy. White supremacy implies black inferiority. Legislation designed to preserve white supremacy The final paragraph in that long speech is still one of the most powerful and courageous political statements ever made. I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. And he was. It was a simple statement of morality and bravery. Mandela confessed to the crime of treason even though he knew he could be put to death. The entire courtroom was silent. It was an extraordinary performance. It was an act of surpassing courage and moral clarity. At the conclusion of testimony that day, the judge adjourned to ponder his decision. For three weeks, the papers all speculated that Mandela and his colleagues would get the death penalty. The world watched and waited. When the defendants returned to court on June 12, 1964, they didn't have much hope. When the judge um, pronounced the sentence, was he nervous? Yes. 
You see, that's why we thought that he was going to give us a death sentence. You could see the way he was breathing. The judge started to read his decision. Right at the outset, he said that he was not giving the prisoners the supreme penalty, death, but that would be his only leniency. And, uh, but he didn't. Now, we really took the fight to them right from the beginning. Yeah. And then uh, my address from the doctors really shattered them. Instead of being put to death, Mandela and his comrades were sentenced to life in prison. Their lives had been spared. It was a decision the government would come to regret. <laughs> 